0: The, um, today, I want to read to you a passage that of a letter that Paul sends to the Galatians. Um, but I thought before I do that, let's just take a look at who these Galatians are. Um, Galatians lived in a region, a province called Galatia, and it's in present day Turkey. And it's in about the middle of Turkey and about the northern edge of Turkey, and it's a, a large region, and it was given, uh, given the name of Galatia, and it's a, it could be called a province. Um, and so who are these people, these Galatians? Well, it's interesting. Um, around um, 270 before Christ, that region, which didn't have the name Galatia at the time, it was invaded by the Greeks. Um, but the Greeks hired an, a large army of Celtic gales that came in and they conquered, they helped conquered that region. And then as payment for the army, uh, the army was given um, control of that region. And so they became that region's, Galatia's ruling class, and they gave it the name Galatia because they're Gaels. They're Celtic Gaels. It's interesting. Where did they come from? Well, they came from north of Greece, south, the southern part of France, and across into the northern region of Spain, which is where they originated. In fact, there's a province there today not called Galatia, but Galicia. And it's interesting, this, uh, these Celtic gills were actually a well-to-do people. They had mines. And because they had mines, not only were they able to fashion jewelry and have a good economy, but they also had the, uh, the type of ore that they could use to build weaponry. And so they had a well-equipped military and because they had a good economy, they had lots of people needing to join an army to do something. And so they hired themselves out to the Greeks to help invade the region of Turkey. But a hundred years before that, a very large army from that region, from Galicia, of Celtic Gales, went up to the northern part of Europe, and they invaded the United Kingdom which of course at that time wasn't called the United Kingdom. And they settled in Ireland, on the west coast of Scotland, and in parts of Wales and the Isle of Man. So this region became inhabited and influenced very much by the Celtic Gales. So that was around 400 BC. Now around 200 years ago, a lot of those people, those descendants of the Celtic gales from Ireland and parts of Scotland and Wales, immigrated across the Atlantic Ocean and settled on the east coast of Canada. And many of them in later years moved further inland and they started founding many of the countries and its churches, the Presbyterian churches around here and some of the Catholic churches. And if you have been here in Exeter, if you have been at a funeral or at e- an event where the bagpipes were blown, you may very well be looking at and listening to a descendant of the same people that invaded Galatia and became its ruling class. Because these bagpipes they came from Ireland and from Scotland. But they also came from Galatia. Archaeological studies have shown, have found the bagpipes actually originated in Galatia. So you can see we're not that far removed from the people that gathered in the darkness of the night under the the safety of the night to listen to this letter that they received from Paul. They lived at a time in Galatia a mere 30 lifespans ago, when life was hard, power was brutal, and the Roman emperor was God. So likely under the cover of darkness, they listened to this letter many times. So I want to read to you Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. And this is the word of the Lord. Years ago, I went to, uh, I grew up in Drayton and me and another guy in my class We started going to university at uh, Waterloo. And I took engineering, and he took uh, environmental studies. And um, one time we were driving back to Drayton after classes. And he said that uh, he had been taking a class with a bunch of engineers uh, this, this seminar, this semester. And he had to chuckle about these engineers. He said, you know, he said, they don't get a concept unless there's an illustration. He says, you know, the, the professor of the class, you know, gives a, outlines a new concept, a new thing of, to be learned, and he said, you know, and, and he says it makes a lot of sense, and he's, you know, he takes the notes in, and he said, uh, he looks around at the engineers in the class, and they're going, what, what? And so the professor sees this look on the, on the students' faces, and he says, okay, here's an illustration. And then you see everybody in the class is happy now and they get an illustration because they can see how this concept applies to life. This is what good teachers do when they're teaching an important concept and they want people to get it. An illustration brings a concept home to life. And this is what Paul is doing here in this, uh, in this text, he is introducing something new to the Galatians that they, um, that would be strange to them. And he brings it home with an illustration. So I'm going to, this morning, I'm going to give you these, this concept And then I'm going to go to Paul's illustration about how this works out. So here, we're going to begin with a concept. And the concept is is about these two lists. So you can put up the first list. Paul gives a list of the acts of a sinful nature. And And he calls them this. He calls them sexual immorality, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, drunkenness, and the like. In other words, I could go on and on and on is what he's saying. So when you see and hear these words, what is it that ties these words together? Other than that they're lists of sinful nature. What, is, what ties these together? And I think um, in from my observation of these, I would suggest that violence ties these together. Violence against others, violence against God, and violence against oneself. And then Paul introduces them to a second list, and he calls this second list the fruit of the Spirit. And so he says the fruit of the Spirit, however, is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what's the theme in this fruit? There's certainly an absence of violence here. This is a list of ways of expressing love. This is a list of virtues. These two lists help Paul to strengthen and clarify his encouragement to the Galatian listeners. He is saying, and he says this very clearly, you must choose. Either you choose the way of violence or the way of virtue. Either you choose the way of the brutal power that they learned from Rome, from the Gaelic invaders from the Persians before that, from the Phrygians before that, from the Hittites before that, all the way back to the Bronze Age. Or are they going to choose the gentle power of the Spirit of God? They have to choose between the way of fight, flight, and freeze, or the way of peace. As we think about this, I don't think it's difficult for us to imagine how the listeners received this message. This was something brand new to them. This was a, this list of sins described the world that they were living in, the world that their parents grew up in, the world that all their forebears grew up in. You look after yourself and don't let yourself get taken advantage of. I am sure they listened to this message several times and discussed it at length. You see, Paul was writing this strongly, strong, clear, and concise language. He closes the chapter by stating that those who belong to Christ have actually crucified the sinful nature. In other words, they've gotten rid of it entirely and have adopted the way of the Spirit of God. And so Paul ends this whole new concept by saying you need to choose this way or this way and you can't do both. And so now we come to the application. And the application begins directly with a real application and it applies just as much to today. If someone is caught in sin, Paul says, you who live by the Spirit are to restore that person. Your number one job in this case is restoration, not correction, not punishment. Your number one job is restoration. Restoration of the sinner is to be dealt with, moreover, by the fruit of the Spirit, because where sin is met by virtue, the power of the spirit is present. Then he reminds the listeners to restore gently, non-violently. Then he gives a warning, but in a drastically understated way, he says, but watch out lest you too are tempted as if. Then Paul goes on in verse two to five saying, we need to help each other. We need to be humble. And it is just tempting to gloss over this. But these instructions are there for the purpose of restoration. And this applies to the real work of living, even here in Exeter. So how does this work today? The level of violence and reactivity, abuse and stress, disagreeability and factiousness isn't the same as it was back in Galatia, and probably not near as bad. Or is it? I wonder. I think that if Paul was to write the same letter to the church at Exeter, the list of sins might be different. But I think it could be just as long and perhaps just as violent in different ways, using different medications. But I suspect that the virtues described by the fruit of the Spirit might not change at all. Paul is showing us how restoration works in real life, where sin happens around us, even in our homes and on our screens every day. So how do we become effective agents of restoration? So Paul gives us four pieces of advice. advice. Move towards restoration. Use the virtues of the spirit. Use your community and be humble. So I want to take the tackle these one at a time. The first one is move toward restoration. You've likely heard of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is the Reformed Church's fullest summary of the Bible in the fewest words possible. And this passage from Paul is his invitation to participate in the ministry of restoration. Even though restorative conversations can be intimidating because after all, you are dealing with sin and the effects of violence. We need to remember that restoration is holy. So then we need to ask ourselves, what is sin? And you'll find that there are many definitions of sin. Um, I remember when I started preaching, I thought I'd better get this sin thing straight. So I, the, uh, the president of our seminary, the Calvin Seminary wrote a book on sin. And so I bought it and, and it just, it didn't confuse me, but it showed how deep and broad sin is. But I found there and later, I found, I think a good description of sin. And it has to deal with shalom. Shalom, we tend to call peace. But shalom is more than peace. When we wish somebody shalom, we are saying, we wish you peace, but we wish you the peace that brings fruitfulness. We wish you the peace that brings flourishing. We wish you the peace that allows you to live life to its fullest then sin is whatever it takes to destroy shalom. And I think that's a useful definition of sin because it catches a lot. Um, We need to understand that this destruction of shalom is violent. Its purpose is to destroy peace. Its purpose is destruction. And so Paul tells the Galatians, you must move towards restoring the sinner. These difficult and dangerous conversations, because that's almost always what they are, they need to be engaged in order to counteract sin and restore shalom. If we walk away from restoration, it is like adding fertilizer to the sinful state, allowing its dark roots to grow deeper and its poisonous fruit to contaminate a community. It could be said that humanity's avoidance of restoration is at the heart of all of earth's problems. Einstein said that the world will not be destroyed by evil but by those who watch it and do nothing. So avoiding restorative conversations can make us complicit in the sin and its ramifications. And so does handling those conversations unwisely. And so we go to number two, the use of the fruit of the spirit. The way of the spirit is the way of restoration. And it is the only way. It is the way of the Spirit of God. And we, as mere people living in a sin-saturated world, we often think that violence equals power. And indeed, violence has a lot of power. We see that on our TV screens. We sometimes cheer about it. But its goal is destruction. Its goal is instant gratification. Its goal is retribution and revenge, not restoration. Using a violent approach to clean up a mess is like using a bulldozer to clean the kitchen floor. It might get the toys off the floor, but the destruction will make the kitchen uninhabitable. Violence is not the way to restoration. And it never has been. Paul makes clear that either you choose the way of sin or the way of the spirit, there is no happy middle ground. A whiff of sin, an edge of violence in the midst of your kind, loving patience puts the whole effort in jeopardy. There's a current story about a college dean who chose the way of virtue, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control when she was trying to deal with a disruptive students, uh, student issue in her, in her college. And she did this in such a good way, but she let slip in there just one word, just one word that was carried, that was, that was weighted with freight, And that was interpreted the wrong way and the whole thing blew up and it became a big story across North America about what not to do. She tried so hard to use the fruit of the spirit, but she let in just a drop, a drop of the way of sin. We all try so hard to use the fruit of the spirit with our words but even our body language can give us away. Or the pronunciation of words, how we say what we say, our behavior, our own gossip, our carelessness with confidentiality, our inconsistency. And so we see when restoration is on the line, we need to not just speak virtues, We need to own the virtues with our heart, soul, mind and strength. And that, brothers and sisters, is a heavy load to bear. And so we come to community. Restoration is a community project. And so because we're so miserably poor at these conversations, we need help. Paul says, Carry the burdens together. Restoration is a heavy load. Wisdom is always greater in a group. So check yourself first. What are your motives, really? I have a friend. He was the executor of his family's estate when his mom and dad passed away. And he was a businessman, and and he was very devoted to his family to his brothers and sisters. And so he spent about a year and a half in all kinds of meetings and consultations and finally got everything settled and everybody got the little bit of money that was left. But then he heard that some of his brothers and sisters thought that he had not done a good job, that he had looked after himself more than the others. And he heard about that. So he called together the family. He walked towards restoration. I understand he even got some advice before he did it, but he went into this meeting on his own and he confronted his brothers and sisters and he tried to use the fruit of the spirit, but his anger and his hurt, his woundedness, and his accusations came out, and his family now has been divided irreparably, so it's, so it's, so it looks for the last ten years. He tried to do it on his own, something that was too big, and it was too heavy for one man to bear, especially a wounded person like he was. You see. It is often the wounded that carry the burden of restoration on their own shoulders. And this, brothers and sisters, is not helpful. This is especially when we need to use our phone a friend card. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this very thing. He says, when you can't do this on your own, take along one or two friends. And if that doesn't work, go to the elders of the church and get their help. Restoration was pretty important to Jesus. And it's a job that when the stakes are great and the pain is tremendous, it's a job that's best done in community. And so use the community. And lastly, Paul says, be humble. At the heart of the difficulty of restoration is this, and gets this really clearly, restoration is almost always about a sinner trying to restore a sinner. Therefore, we must be humble because all of us stand under the need of redemption, each and every one of us. So pride prevents. Pride points the finger, never aware that there are three fingers pointing back. Therefore, the only safe way and the only effective way to restoration is the humble but persistent way of the spirit, the path of virtue. It's the narrow path, but it's the way of life. It's the way of virtue, and it's difficult because it requires us to be vulnerable. Therefore, we are afraid, and we throw stones and heap insults, and we gossip and we slander. To be vulnerable is to be able to say, I need your help. I feel that I am inadequate for this on my own. Everyone's shalom has been damaged, and therefore each one of us is broken. As now one would say, we are the wounded. In the heart of each one of us, there is a deep longing for peace and flourishing. So as we walk towards the person who is caught in sin. Our eyes may see and expect the bristly posture and the defensive stance, the angry face, the judging eyes, but rest assured that even in that heart, the deepest longing is for Shalom. It may be many layers deep and under the scars of many wounds. But there lies a hunger for shalom, for peace, for flourishing, in a life whose flourishing has been diminished, has been thwarted, has been taken away. The sweetest thing we can do is to faithfully engage with the Spirit of God, humbly side by side, open to God's healing mercy, not only for that person, the person caught in sin, but for ourselves. Jesus is the wounded healer. His approach embodies all four of the bits of Paul's advice to us. When the world was in sin, he didn't turn away. In fact, he moved towards restoration and his way was not the way of sin, but it was gentle. It was kind. It was patient, powerfully gentle, kind, and patient. Jesus also did not do this on his own, in fact. The spirit was with him, we read. And he often sought out his father's comfort in the desert. Once, he even sought out relief from his close friends, Elijah and Moses, on a mountaintop. And Jesus also was humble, humble and innocent like a lamb. So humble that he took the hurt and pain, the sin and sores of the world on himself. He took our guilt and shame to the cross so that we can be restored, restored into fellowship, restored into community. Brothers and sisters, it's a new year and it's a new day here in Exeter and around the world. And I think Paul is saying to us, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, you need to choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to follow the way of sin and satisfy your carnal desires, or are you going to choose the way of the spirit? which is the way that blesses, which is the way that brings peace, which is the way that brings shalom, which is the way of restoration. Getting along in 2021 can be hard. Sin is so effective at destroying what is good and precious, but we have been restored to God through Jesus Christ and his spirit who is inclined towards restoration, and that God goes with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and for your grace, and especially for the way of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to choose this day again which way we will go We know that your call and your spirit leans us towards the fruit, but we know that our hearts are sometimes inclined towards the way of sin. We just pray, God, that we may choose each day and we may choose again at the beginning of a year the way that blesses, the way that pleases you. Make us strong. Make us courageous. Make us willing to be humble and vulnerable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.